As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes, adult film stars, and sportsman drag racing. Big Jed, I thought this was a quiet week. We literally had one race to discuss. Yes, it's early January. Yes, we get to talk about actual on-track racing. We said, hey, we'll wrap this up 45 minutes, no doubt. We got one race to talk about. Leave it to me and you. If you've punched through, you know we're, I don't know, what are we, 75 minutes into this? Uh, Yeah, somewhere along in there. uh, We definitely had a lot of... A lot of stuff to talk about, uh, and we probably got a little long-winded, which both of us are known to do, but nonetheless, no. it was it was really good stuff. It's going to be fun to listen to, and, you know, certainly the, the main part of this discussion that we're going to have about the incident that happened is uh, is worth your time alone just to just to tune in and maybe go find that online when you when you hear about it. Yeah, fun discussion, again, centered around the, this epic, huge um, New Year's Nationals in Bradenton, Florida, 700 plus entries, nearly 200 of those junior dragster entries, um, at least one bizarre moment that, yeah, we probably spend way too much time talking about, um, and some big picture takeaways that obviously are, are, are brought to the surface by this particular event, but create a, a broader discussion for like what what are fair expectations? What is ultimately for the good of the sport? I, like I say, it's, it's, uh, we went, we went off on a couple of deep dives here, but I, I think this is a, I think this is a fun show and a good show. So, uh, obviously keep listening, check it out. 
Um, how do we do this, Jed? All that and more, but first. Our good friend, Barefoot, PJ North. Big Jed, it is early January. Where I live, it's cold. There's snow on the ground. And here we are to talk not just about sportsman drag racing in general, but to talk about actual on-track racing that happened last weekend, New Year's weekend. Sportsman drag racing is a year-round sport, Big Jed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a year-round sport, Luke. And we're not only going to talk about a, a, a race, the New Year's Nationals at Bradenton, but we're going to talk about quite possibly the, the highest attended race of all of 2021 and as it turns out it was a new year's race so it could be the highest of 2022 as well (laughs) it's all said and done this thing was crazy man it certainly is to this point not only is there actual bracket racing to talk about i think it is safe to say that bracket racing is alive and well to your point 700 plus entries on the grounds at uh, the new year's nationals in bradenton florida uh, spread out over three cut co- three classes. We had a top ball class. We had a bottom ball class. We had a junior dragster class. That's relevant too, because nearly 200 junior dragsters on the grounds for part of this. Uh, obviously the, the, the turnout brings about its own challenges, but I just, from afar, it's easy for me to say I wasn't there. Right. Um, what an amazing event and turnout aided in some, in some fashion, I think, um, and, and we can dig into this a little bit deeper as we go, Jed, but uh, location, obviously timing, certainly um, being a, a time of year where most of us are off, right. And, and have the ability to, to perhaps travel further than we would otherwise. Um, and, and I aided at least in some small percentage by the, the fact that there were two races on the schedule, big races on the schedule for new year's weekend, this one, and uh, the race that Britt Brit Cummings and Galen Rollison were putting on in Belrose, Louisiana, Early in the week, that race got postponed a couple of weeks due to impending weather. And I know at least a handful of racers that were planning on being at Bellrose went ahead and made the trip quite a bit further south and, and east to, to Bradenton. So all in all, like perfect storm, I think, to, to, to bring that many racers in such a wide variety of classes from really all over the country to one place at one time. Yeah, actually, Luke, it was the perfect storm in more ways than even you you discussed there, which all of those were key factors in the, the 708 entry field. Um, but it's also, uh, it was perfect weather. I, I say that. We'll talk about it a little bit more here when we start talking about the event. They, they did have to stop one evening a little short of their target time because the dew was so heavy. It was falling like rain, but uh, pretty much unbelievable weather. It was a time where weather, uh, a lot of rain was traveling up from the southwest up into the mid-south and southeast. So there was no opportunity for anybody to do anything other than head to Bradenton and race. And it all worked out super well for Rob Reynolds and Bill Murray and the folks at Bradenton. And again, as you said, 708 entries, you know, that's a that's incredible, but the fact that there was 200, I, I say 200, I think it was actually 195 junior dragsters on the grounds, 
no box did not get to that number. And I think they had 380 on the top. So a really big field in top, a good crowd in no box and an incredible crowd of junior dragsters. It all led to, you know, some challenges, obviously, for the for the promoters and the, the race track itself, because, you know, you just can't get that done. Um, there's right. buybacks involved. And I, I saw so much discussion online about you got to do away with buybacks and that's just being greedy. There was no greed in that whatsoever. Uh, Rob Reynolds don't have a greedy bone in his body. I don't know Bill, but I'm sure he doesn't as well. Um, it was basically giving the racers what they said they were going to give them. They were able to make it all work out where they ran the first day. It did take them three days again because of some challenges with due and whatnot. Uh, ran the first day, completed it on the third day, and then combined the Saturday, Friday, Saturday races into a Saturday, Sunday race and wrapped up with still sunlight up on Sunday. So I think it all wrapped up really nicely. And I, I think those guys did an incredible job of uh, running such a large field, especially when you think about 195 juniors, because that is a marathon in itself, Luke. No question. There's a lot to, to dissect here. And, and to be completely honest, this time of year, we're probably starving for content to, to some degree. But I think the obvious jumping off point, let, let's talk about who won, because this is a race in South Florida. And as I'm looking through the 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 results at the top of the page, the vast majority of the names that I know are from Kentucky. That's not a close to South Florida, Big Jed. No, no, it's a long way from South Florida. and <laughs> Certainly uh, a long ride for those guys. And what I'll talk about here with Lucas uh, just goes to show that. But uh, first, bottom bulb. Uh, winner of the, the weekend was Lucas Walker. Got the win over Maverick Palmateer, which uh, folks is familiar with junior dragster racing. Those Maverick was very successful uh, in a junior series or junior uh, uh, racing. So he's uh, obviously carried his talents on to the next level and competing with uh, those folks in no box. And Lucas got the win, uh, drove really good too. Uh, I looked at some of his runs. Uh, he was doubled late and certainly had an opportunity to, to do something super special, but ended up with the 10 K win, which is a big deal for the bottom bulb guys. And I, uh, I texted Lucas and told him congrats. And, uh, it was very impressive what he did, uh, making the good runs that he made uh, the final. I can't remember exactly what it looked like, but it was a good run in both lanes. And I told him good luck in the 20 K and he said, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, but uh, I won't be winning the 20K. I'm <laughs> pulling out of the gate now, headed home. So for, for $20,000 to be on the line on the bottom bulb next race and Lucas to skip that just goes to show, hey, there was a, there was a, lot, of, um, a lot of long days, and he was probably concerned that he wouldn't get out in time to make it back to get back to normal life and work on Monday. So he skipped the 20K. So... That tells you how far Kentucky was away anyway. And from what I hear, Luke, there were people there from many, many of the northern, northern states, like up the East Coast and everything. So folks were obviously looking to get away and, and get down there and do some racing. Yeah, now the little bit, I was not glued to the live feed throughout the weekend, to be, to be honest, but the little bit that I did watch, it had very much uh, like 1990 
Moroso five day feel in that regard that like there was a lot of quote unquote snowbirds converging on yeah. a beautiful area of the country at, at, at the right time of year. Yep, no doubt. I think that was a, a major factor there. Just folks trying to get away and go down there and have some fun and get to do some racing as well. So it all seemed to work out well for them um, along the, the the lines of the first race there, the, t- the 10K top bulb race also uh, was uh, finished up around the same time. I think that all finished up a Saturday morning, Luke. Uh, and I should have said, originally the schedule was test and tune Wednesday, going to race Thursday, going to race Friday, going to race Saturday. And then Sunday was a travel day to get home. It was a perfect format. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't get to finish the first race until Saturday morning. Then they started the second one and got it all wrapped up Sunday. And by the way, as far as the greed goes, um, Rob and Bill uh, announced very early when they saw they were going to have a monster crowd testing tunes on us. Wednesday, you won't have any expense. There was a there was a fee associated with that originally on the schedule. They said, guys, we're taking care of that. Everybody's going to get two runs and, and get ready, and we're going to go racing the rest of the days. So, you know, they, they had track expense and brought nothing in on Wednesday. There was no greed there. That was... Uh, that was very giving and, and thoughtful of them. And then Sunday, there was another day of track fee that you get that you didn't plan on that they absorb. So um, I hope people really look at that and dissect it and understand that they were anything but greedy. Nonetheless, the 10K wrapped up on Saturday morning as well. Uh, Jason McCandless, North Carolina racer, talented young man, part of a legendary family in, in drag racing. Got a big 10K top win over Travis Logan. Uh, that was a big deal for, for all of those guys. And Jason, that was a huge win for him. And and the uh, junior category, the first race paid $2,000 to win, Luke. And Aaron Kinsey aged out. That was the last race Aaron could run. How awesome is that? And Aaron got the win over Matthew Peterson, aging out there for a $2,000 final round. That wrapped up. The first of two races, a uh, really, really cool deal there uh, for all of those racers to battle through two or three days of racing and, and finally get that win. Yeah, no, you mentioned the the Aaron Kinsey and, and wrapping up his junior dragster career and style. I do think that that is my understanding, at least, is, is that part of this massive junior dragster turnout is not only everything that we talked about coming in, but the calendar itself in terms of this has become a race that junior dragster racers look at as like, this is my going out party because it falls on the, on the, on the first of the year or the the last of the year, if you will, this is my last opportunity to drive a junior dragster. And, and you see a lot of that, like I, uh, Daniel Hagedorn or Daniel Mockney um, put together a, a really cool video. I don't know if you get an ch- opportunity to see that Jed, kind of featuring those racers that had aged out. And there was, I don't know, 20 plus junior dragster drivers there that were competing in their last junior dragster event that weekend. I, I think obviously that you can't select any one thing to, to explain 700 plus entries that everything plays into it, but that certainly played a role on the junior dragster side. It definitely played a role, Luke. That's a, a played a role. Excuse me. That's a, that's a big deal aging out. You know, that's a, that's an emotional thing for for those racers those parents guardians 
whomever that's that's been with those kids for you hit it. definitely more emotional thing for the parents i think yeah yeah you know they, <laughs> they they've possibly been racing with them for 10 years now and those things and and for this to be over um you know i know it's bittersweet i've got a couple of juniors and you've got a junior so you know i'm looking forward to the day where i don't have to race juniors anymore i think but at the same time i really don't know what it's going to be like when when it's all over so Nonetheless, um, Rob and, and Bill and the folks down there at the New Year's Nationals make a big deal out of the aging out process, and they do something special for the kids that are aging out, and Danielle and many of the parents get together for that as well. So it's a pretty special deal, and I think that's definitely leading to the large crowds that they're seeing in juniors, and certainly, you know, it's, it's Christmas, New Year's, kids are out of school, um, parents are off work. It's perfect combination. I'm sure the the fact that, you know, a lot of their friends are aging out leads others that aren't aging out just to want to be there for that part of the, the ceremony. So all that stuff uh, led to a monster crowd. And, it, you know, it could be time for the juniors to have their own deal for New Year's down that way. We'll see. But nonetheless, um, that did get them into the, the Saturday after that was over, that got them into the friday saturday combo race which was actually a saturday sunday combo race when it was all said and done and everything doubled so now the juniors are racing for four thousand the uh bottom bulb and top bulb racers are racing for twenty thousand and that all wrapped up on sunday luke and it was probably one of the most interesting <laughs> days in racing that i've seen and we'll talk about that shortly but uh, and the $4,000 to win junior race, uh, Jay Lee, and I don't know how to say this last name, but it looks like uh, Susie or Saucy. I'm not sure. Maybe Saucy. Saucy would have a nice ring to it. <laughs> S-O-U-C-Y. I apologize to Jay Lee for messing that up, but Jay Lee got the win over uh, Hayden Land and $4,000 junior win, Luke, is a really big deal. So congrats to Jay Lee for that. That is huge, especially on such a large stage with such a large crowd. So you can only imagine how that win felt. I'll flip back over to the 20K top bulb side where the red hot Tebow got the win over the red hot uh, Donovan Williams. Tyler Bohannon uh, carrying on his winning ways that I guess didn't necessarily start at the Great American Guaranteed Million, but that was uh, the the highlight of it and he has continued to get big wind lights round after round after that and he did the same thing at the uh, new year's nationals with a 20k win huge deal for for tebow really happy to see that for him he's one of the good guys and donovan williams luke it's what can you say about donovan donovan is starting to show up pretty regular in these late rounds and final rounds uh, obviously it's in his blood he is uh he is Gary Williams' son, so he knows the game and knows it well, but he is really starting to perform at a high level and, and um, apparently or appearing to carry on the Williams' name very, very well. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll start with Donovan here as well and then transition into Tyler. Donovan Williams, obviously, it's Gary Williams' son, comes from a, a pretty tremendous racing lineage, right? So success no surprise and when donovan first took the wheel uh he had almost immediate success relatively locally like five ten granders in that area um knocking knocking that down and i think 
within the last really six months has really begun to break through on the the biggest stages that we have to offer the stages that is that we're used to seeing his father and his uncle on and again like no surprise whatsoever it's it's in his blood but to watch donovan operate and to be around him i guess this shouldn't be a surprise either because Gary particularly is not only one of, if not the most talented racer in, in what we do, um, one of also the most humble and the way that Donovan carries himself very much that, you know what I mean? Just uh, very down to earth, like has a, has a really unique perspective for someone of his age, I think on our sport. And probably because he's seen it from every angle. And I think it's cool to see him having success, not just because he's the next Williams in line, but because of the way that he seems to approach it, at least from outside. Yeah, definitely has uh, seen that example play out many times over. Obviously, his father has won just about everything you can win. And sometimes he's won that more than once. Um, And, you know, Donovan has watched somebody very close to him accomplish that and then just be who they are when they get out of the car, right. just be that same guy. And uh, I think that certainly has set the right example for him. And, um, you know, I, there's, there's gotta be something to that. It, it's probably also keeps you good and calm in the car and you don't get yourself all worked up before the runs and whatever it is, whatever is in that Williams gene, Donovan's definitely got it and he's going to continue to turn on big wind lights for many, many years. Yeah. I think the easiest way that I could say this is as good as Gary Williams is at driving a race car. I've never gotten the impression that Gary's identity is rooted in whether or not the wind light comes on. And I don't think that's all that common, especially at that level. Mm -hmm. And I get that same vibe from Donovan. Now, Switching gears over to, to Tyler Bohan and see if you can follow me in, in, on this parallel, Jed. So coming into the 2020 Great American Guaranteed Million, Jeff Sarah is a young racer who I think everyone in the know realizes this dude has all of the tools, right? And But it, it never come together on, a, on that type of stage, right? And it all comes together in the biggest way possible. And from then on, you can't shut the dude off. I mean, he had <laughs> the, the most epic, you know, 2021 season of, of any season in recent memory. And I have to think that on some level, on some level, like I feel like Jeff's success is inevitable. Cause like I said, he's had that amazing toolbox and developed it over years. Like there, there was success coming regardless, but I think it's hard to argue that winning that race on that stage with that money and those eyeballs, it's hard to argue that that is not a catalyst for just supreme confidence, if nothing else, and, and a huge snowball that is now rolling downhill. And I don't want to put the pressure on Tyler Bohannon to have a 2022 season like Jeff Sarah had in 2021. Like That's probably not realistic, but I see all of the parallels in that Tyler is a young man who I think most of us for years have said, again, that dude has all the tools, right? Calm under pressure, every club in the bag, finish line, starting line, top ball, bottom ball, like dude can do it all. Right. And I just, it wouldn't shock me if a year from now we're talking about Tyler Bohannon 
the way that we talk about Jeff Sarah, the way that we talk about Nick Hastings. Like I could see that big event being this catalyst that just absolutely knocks down the door and Tyler starts winning everything. This may be the first of that. Yeah, look, that's a very good point. Um, it does, you know, as we've always said, winning breeds winning and and you you tend to get to snowball those and get get them get those wind lights rolling when you do something big like Tebow did uh, back in Montgomery in November. Um, it certainly happened with Jeff Sarah. Jeff's always a talented racer and always has been very competitive, but man, when he, when he kicked that door down for that big one, it just stayed down, as you said, and you couldn't stop the guy. Uh, Tyler is off to a very good start to, to follow up his million dollar race win. Uh, Cause he's, you know, winning obviously some really good races behind that. And will his, And that's not a knock on Tyler, but Jeff did a, you know, that was a lifetime uh, accomplishment that he had. And it, you know, we, we say it every year, well, this guy's season probably won't ever be duplicated. And then somebody goes and does better than that the next year. So I hope that's Tebow because he deserves it. He's a, he's a really good dude. And I'd like to see him continue that. But, um, you know, I, I hope folks don't compare that either. He, he, uh, he getting compared to what Jeff Sarah did in 2021 would be rather difficult, but nonetheless, um, you're talking about a guy that, uh, probably isn't making a lot of different types of runs than he's ever made because Tebow's always made really good runs. But I guess sometimes Luke, when you're winning like this, you just have a supreme confidence in what you're doing and you, you get really good at executing your game plan. And sometimes the guy in the other lane knows, his opponent is has winning everything and he's trying to do something a little extraordinary and doesn't get away with it a lot. So I think all of that stuff just piles up into more win lights for the guys that are that are competing and, and performing well on a big stage. All right, so that was the top ball version of the combined 20 grander. You alluded to it a little bit earlier, the the bizarre nature, the drama. Really came on the bottom bulb side, Jed. Walk, walk us through this. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Troy Stafford got the win, Luke. He, he's a Florida racer. Um, got a got a group. He, he's part of a group that comes up to the WFC every year, and they're just fun, fun guys that like to have a really good time. And I love seeing them come up and have fun. Uh, that was a big win for Troy. It's a twenty thousand dollar bottom bulb win, which is huge. He got the win over Lane Blackburn. Lane is the son of Anthony Blackburn, which is a legendary bottom bulb racer in the, the Ohio Valley area, you know, Kentucky, all up through there. Uh, he's, he's got out quite a bit. Uh, Anthony has over the years. He won a, a gambler's race at, at uh, Bristol this year at one of our races. Lane's a very talented young man that's following in his dad's footsteps and going to do great things, but really happy for Troy. That was huge. Luke. It was down to uh, seven cars, uh, I believe, and was going to obviously land at four. Troy had two entries in at seven, had one through, um, and he was racing uh, Jeff Stewart 
which is another awesome dude out of West Virginia. Everybody knows Stewie, four-door cutlass, uh, just fun guy to be around, a really, really talented racer. Troy is racing him at seven cars. And I haven't talked to Troy, I haven't talked to Stewie, but I've seen the video and I've, I've seen Troy explain his strategy <laughs> since the, the race happened. So they burn out and they go towards the starting line. And we've all seen the staging battles that I'm such a huge fan of. Uh, this was a pre-stage battle, Luke. So uh, I guess... You want to light the top bulb. Yeah, I, I guess um, in my head, it was just, I was thinking maybe no one was going in because somebody was going to, one of them was going to try to maybe go deep and it wasn't getting honored. I couldn't really figure it out what was happening at the time. But they sit there and sit there and sit there. And this thing goes two minutes, three minutes. Starters tell them, hey, stage the cars. You know, it's just, we've had our fun. Let's go. Hot rod. Well, I mean, at least pre-stage the cars, right? <laughs> yeah, at least pre-stage. Hot rod Fincham's on the mic and he's had a good time with it. But it gets to the point, you know, three or four minutes in that he's telling them, all right, they're telling me here that you guys have to stage or they're going to throw you out. So my understanding is Bill Murray comes down out of the tower and tells them somewhere along that four or five minute range. And I'm probably missing some details here, but I got the gist of it. Tells them guys go in there pre-stage and stage, or you're both going to be out. I will throw both of you out. Now you got to fix this. So they, this thing gets to six minutes and some change, Luke. And and it, from what I remember, Stewie went in and pre-staged. Somewhere along the line, I think he pre-staged and backed back out of the pre-stage. And then he went in and pre-staged. They finally go in and race six and a half minutes or so into this thing. And Stafford gets the win. His win light comes on and he is now doubled at four pairing himself on the ladder and he's going to advance an entry and have one in a, a semifinal in a 20 grander. So big day for him. So after, after it's all said and done, I start seeing this on Facebook and people are just, they're livid, you know, like what in the crap are you guys doing? You, you wouldn't even pre-stage, you know, I've heard of the staging battle, but a pre-stage battle is a little bit over the line. And so that there, there, someone finally just calls him out. Like, what are you doing? And he said, he answered this way. Well, if, um, if I win right there, I've got a, basically a bye to the final. If we both get eliminated. The ladder was set. He, he's yeah. already advanced one entry to the semifinals. So if he wins the round over Stewart, he knows he has to run himself in the semifinal. Correct? Exactly. Okay. He, but he also followed that up with, if we both get thrown out right there, I've got to buy to the final. <laughs> so, so he knows if, if Stewart beats him there, apparently Stewart would have had him again in the semis. And he obviously, you know, might or might not have made the final. If he, he knew if he won, he'd make the final, but he also knew if he could get both of them kicked out, he would make the final loop. 
I didn't explain that really well, but his intentions were to get him and his opponent kicked out of the race. And so he would have a bye to the final for 20K. Never, Interesting strategy. I, I got to say that's a first. Like it. that, it's a first. Um, it's, a, it's a unique situation because there's actually, like, if you want to make the argument for Troy Stafford there, Jed, there's very little to gain on that run. Like, ultimately, you take, if you win the round, you take your round money from quarterfinals to semifinals. And I guess you, you guarantee advancing yourself to the, to the final round. Um, the flip side of that is if he is to get beat, well, I, you'd say like, well, that dude has to beat me twice. It's funny. Cause I think we've all been there. I, I know you and I have been there, Jed, when you're rolling. Right. And at that point, um, Troy Stafford had won what 14, 15, 16 consecutive rounds. Right. When that win like doesn't come on. I think the hardest round in racing is the next round after yes. all of that momentum that the, the wind is knocked out of your sails. So you can say like that dude's had to beat me twice. If it happens once, it's tough to come back and recover from that. So I understand, I guess the motivation, I don't know that I would be willing to, <laughs> to, to endure a double disqualification. Like I certainly don't want my opponent to go out that way, but I guess what I'm getting at, Jed, is I can I can understand the motivation behind Troy Stafford's actions. What's the story on Stewart? Like, why wouldn't he pre-stage? Well, that's a good question. I really don't know the answer to that, which was something I was going to bring up. Like, how do you end up with two racers? Now, obviously, it was part of Troy's <laughs> strategy. But how do you end up with two racers that won't pre-stage and this even becomes an issue? I mean, I'm, at some point I'm, you know, I might be a little slow or something, but I'm going to roll up there and pre-stage, not thinking that my opponent wants us both thrown out. Of course, he, he didn't know that at the time, but I'm guessing that Troy, that Jeff had been last to pre-stage in every run. That's all I can figure it was happening. Troy was seeing that take place. And he was like, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If he's going to make me pre-stage first, I'm not going to pre-stage at all. And at some point we'll get kicked out and we'll just sit there hard headed and, and they'll throw us both out. So I'm guessing that Jeff was, had a pattern that he wouldn't pre-stage first. And Troy was trying to play off of that somewhat and end up getting, getting himself and his opponent tossed out of the race. I would love to hear like the inside baseball here, because is this just the way that you laid it out? Like, was this 100% premeditated on, on Troy Stafford's behalf? Because if so, while I don't agree with trying to win this way, like it's pretty brilliant. Like, I don't think I'd ever thought of it. Right. <laughs> um, on the flip side, I, there's a part of me that says, you know, maybe this began as just two dudes being stubborn. And then after two minutes, when whether it's over the PA or it's the race director coming down to them and threatening, like, I'll throw you both out. Maybe at that point for Troy Stafford, it catalyzes like, hell, that ain't a bad thing for me. Like, let's sit here. Yeah, throw us both out. Right. <laughs> I, I would be curious to know in an honest moment if that was the plan, like when they pulled into the water box or the plan got changed in the moment or 
I think there's also the possibility that it might have just been two dudes being stubborn for six minutes. And in the aftermath, you're like, you know, I could justify all this. Like, I don't know the truth. The truth is one of those three, right? Yes, the truth is in there somewhere. I certainly would like to hear it. I probably should have reached out to Troy to, to figure out the <laughs> truth so I could report it here on the show exclusively. But um, <laughs> I will I will try to find that out and report it at a later date. But either way, it, it's just it's very odd to me that you ended up having uh, eight, eight, two racers or even one racer that, that where you couldn't get anyone to pre-stage to the point where they sat there, Luke, for six minutes. <laughs> I mean, do we realize how long six minutes is? That's a long time. That's a long you know, time. Auto starts set on 10 seconds. And sometimes like when you're, you feel like you're about to get auto started, if it takes you a little bit and it feels like you were there forever. And now we're talking about six minutes. You know, it brings up a, an interesting point that I've heard debated and I, I never really weighed in on because I, I quite frankly, I don't much care. I guess I could see the, the argument on either side, but in this particular case, if there's not a ladder in place, does this happen? Like, I know that there is a line of, of thought that says, hey, if I've got two entries in at four, if I just pair myself, I, I advance one to the final. I've seen racers do that, right? On purpose. Um, that's not my line of thought. Like, when I get down to four cars, if I'm double entered, like, I'm, I ain't been whipped all day. I'm going to run myself in the final. I ain't trying to run myself, right? Um, yeah. But it, it, if that's... If in a forced situation, like it brings up something like this, where it actually could be beneficial to, you know, <laughs> like I say, it's kind of bizarre. I've never really thought through this, but it, it would benefit Troy Stafford in the, in that instance for a double DQ. And that's completely off the table if there's not a ladder in place. Yeah, I agree. Not without the ladder, that probably does change that somewhat. Um, especially, I guess it turns into more, uh, of an aggressive approach if you've gotten one through mm -hmm. and you don't have a ladder you you know you can either pair yourself or you know you can avoid that and really shoot the moon and see what happens if there's no ladder so i guess uh it's interesting to to think about that the, the ladder impacted that that whole sequence of events but still I mean, who who's ever come back like, what the hell was you doing? And and you say, well, I was trying to get thrown out. <laughs> and it kind of makes sense, you know. I, I mean, can't believe I thought about it. Like, okay, I can't believe these I, I SOBs did. didn't throw me out. Yeah, I, what I, are I, they doing? How they <laughs> let me sit there six minutes didn't throw me out. <laughs> I, I I can't say that I agree with it, but I I understand where he's coming from. I, wow, yeah, and and honestly, like just for the sake of us, Jed, that we have to to record a, a podcast in early January. Thank you, Troy Stafford. Thank yes. you, Stuart. Like you've given us you've given us ten minutes of content. That's amazing. Yes, yes, this was a huge help and uh, certainly fun to talk about and, and, you know, hopefully fun to listen to. But it's, I encourage anybody to go back to Motor Mania, catch that, uh, that quarterfinal round, 
check it out. Listen to Hot Rod. Hot Rod was epic during that whole thing. And then he, you could tell he finally got his feel of it as well. It's like, you know, all right, <laughs> this is bull crap, guys. Let's go. Now, you know, buddy, his buddies, Jeff Stewart's his buddy. He's he's from West Virginia. So, you know, that, that hillbilly vibe going on between them and all that. And then uh, Stafford's the, the, this big intimidating looking Florida guy that's, you know how Florida racers can be sometimes look those guys just different, you know? So it was all fun and games, but, uh, but I, everybody pretty much had their feel of it uh, by the time the six minute, uh, ticker rolled around. I, I, I've got a couple, I want to zoom out. I've got a couple of big picture things that I want to discuss that, that are, I guess, inherently about this race, but, but really broader, like, uh, that I want to discuss at large that this race kind of catalyzes the first and, and who knows, maybe this is just a complete blip on the radar and it is all timing and location based again, like we said earlier, the perfect storm. I wonder if we won't look back on, on this event and perhaps events like it as a bit of a, a turning of the page within the big dollar bracket racing market, Jed, for this particular reason, there was a time when if you were going to draw this many racers to this, let's face it, like remote of a location, right? From, from the typical racing geography, the only way that you could expect to get racers there as a promoter was to pay insane money, right? And and in this day and age, like what is insane money? This race was not that. This race was by today's standards, like your very run of the mill, big dollar bracket race, like three tens is what it was advertised. Ended up being one ten and two twenties. And I actually, I feel like that absolutely played into making this race as huge as it was, was the fact that it was not a mega dollar race, not in terms of the payout wasn't that huge, but the costs weren't that huge. And it facilitated like a vacation type feel without a ton of pressure. Like, I just wonder if we're not circling back toward that. There was a time when I felt like 10, 20 granders were lost in the shuffle, right? Like they, they fell in that mid range to where um, they, they were still outpricing the quote unquote local racer, but not paying enough money to appeal to the, the touring big dollar bracket racer. I think we're coming full circle on that. I, I think that there is a significant market for those style of events again. Would you Would you agree, or am I reading too much into that? No, I think you're spot on with it, Luke. Just definitely, uh, definitely seems to be um, a market that had dwindled somewhat, but is coming back around. Um, you know, I think the affordability of it that you discussed is uh, was a key factor. Um, as mentioned earlier in the show, there were a lot of Northern racers there. Those guys typically have shut down by early to mid October, sometimes earlier in the extreme Northern States, been two or three months since some people had raced, um, again, kids out of school, um, people off work, just the, the available time to go do it, the racing at it a beautiful venue with uh, motor mania TV going on. There's, there's so many factors that led to this monster crowd, but I think by and large, the fact that it was not a mega buck race brought all of those customers 
down just because of the affordability of it all. I think, I, I guess what I'm getting, I feel like there is a growing segment of the big dollar bracket racing market that sees value in racing for enough money that if you won the race, it would matter. And I think a, a 10, 20 grander does checks those boxes and yet not having the financial strain, maybe even not having the, the, the pressure. And, and let's face it. Like I love the big dollar, the huge dollar bracket racings. I love that atmosphere, but it does suck some of the fun that initially drew me to racing out of it because it's just, it's, it's enough money. It has to be a little bit more serious races like this. I feel like toe that, that middle line where you're still racing for enough to matter, but if the weekend doesn't go well and the vast majority of the time, the weekend doesn't go as well as we would like, you can swallow that and head on back home. You know what I mean? So I, I, I do think that's coming back full circle. My second question for you, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, and, and perhaps I'm opening Pandora's box here on what would otherwise be a, a relatively short show. When a race goes tremendously well, as this one did, do the do successful promoters in this instance owe the racers anything? Um, no. Um, you owe them what you, what you promised them, what got them there. And you, you certainly want to do as much as you can to enhance their experience. So um, what does that take? That's all debatable and, and subjective and relative to to who's in the pits, but reality is when you have large, large crowds like this, people get their calculators out and they figure out this is what they're making and they're doing this and doing that. Most people have no idea that when the crowd goes extremely large, it's costing the promoter more money to put the race on. Just like we talked about in this particular instance in, in Bradenton, you know, they gave them a test and tune on Wednesday. They took care of that. There was a track fee associated with that. There was um, expenses that day that got nothing in return. They had an additional day of expense on Sunday that they didn't plan on. So there were, there were quite a few dollars absorbed there by the promoters that people don't take in account. You know, they don't, they don't, figure that up when they're running their calculator. The problem is that the, that additional money didn't get in the racer's hands. So therefore people feel like the promoters aren't doing enough. You know, they didn't, didn't add to the purse, didn't pay more than they said. Well, all I owe you truthfully is what, you know, was promised on the flyer when you use the word, Oh, and I don't feel like it's a requirement for promoters to, to add to the purse and, and do extra more than they say they'll do from a, from a payout standpoint. Now, do people do it? Of course, many promoters do that. And that, that's not a bad thing at all. But sometimes we put that right on the top. And we say, well, it's, instead of 10,000 wins, it's going to be 15,000 wins. We appreciate you guys so much. Well, who did that benefit? That benefited the handful of racers that were cutting that up in the last six cars. And, and how did that enhance the experience for mm -hmm. 
the other hundreds of racers that come up short. So, you know, the, those those things when we do extra as promoters, they get misguided sometimes and get in the wrong hands. I say wrong hands. That's a bad way of putting it. But uh, the don't get in the hands that I feel like they should get in all the time. So when when someone feels like they want to do extra, I, I feel like that should be somewhere back down the line and and impact what you want to do with your with your offerings if you're going to do more is impact the most racers you can possibly impact i think that's how you make the crowd happier so um that that doesn't always happen but back to your original question do the do the promoters owe the racers anything extra when a, a race is successful and uh, no i do not believe they do we're in alignment here 100 percent. my simple answer again is no like in this instance promoters the promoters are the racers nothing and our listeners may look at that and say well that's hypocritical you guys just called out sfg for overselling a race and and not adding to the purse we called out uh the the flings on the same thing a couple of years ago that's different because you've sold a racer's bill of goods right you advertised on the flyer like here's the max we're not going to take more than that and when you don't do what's what's on the flyer, you don't do what you've promised, then I have a problem with that. In this instance, this is uh, an example of you know that the age-old promoter philosophy. Like the promoters of this event are taking a significant risk. There is there is no more guarantee that there will be seven hundred plus entries on the ground than there is that there would have been seventy. And at that point, no one's crying for them, right? I mean. As a racer, you don't like to see anybody lose money, but you damn well expect the purse to be paid as advertised. Yeah. So in this instance or instances like it, and I could say, I don't mean to single out this event. Like I, I want to have a broader discussion here. Um, when a racetrack or a promoter feels the need and says like, look, this has been a tremendous success. The, the, the profit margin is up. We're going to, to give back in whatever way, right? We're going to add to the, the purse on the top. We're going to pay back deeper, uh, whatever the case may be. Obviously, that should be appreciated by us as racers. It should never be expected. Um, and so that's the way that I look at that. And then you could take into, yeah, you touched earlier on like, okay, should there be a, a buyback because there's so many cars? And I can see both sides of that argument too. And you'll hear both sides of that argument, not just in race control. You'll hear both sides of that argument in the pits. There's racers that drove 20 plus hours to come to this event that are not going to be happy if they lose in round one and are done, right? Like the, the, mm -hmm. the bill of goods that they got, what's on the flyer says that there's a buyback. Like I expect to have another shot. There will be racers that argue that. So whichever decision you make there, there's pros and cons to. And as a promoter, you can't win in that situation. I, I think ultimately, I'm never going to fault any promoter for doing exactly what they said they were going to do, what's laid out on the flyer. And it is my understanding that that's basically the way that this race happened. I, I, don't, I don't see as a racer, you could appreciate doing more if there's more done. Yeah, I don't think you can expect more than that. I don't either, Luke. I don't understand that whole mentality of um, expecting the promoter to do more. Um, you know, again, when it happens, we appreciate it, but expecting it, you know, uh, sometimes I go to a nice restaurant and it's a it's 45 minute wait or it might be an hour and a half wait. And by the time I get in there, 
that tells me that it was a pretty good night for the restaurant. They did really, really well. Yeah, they're going to discount your, your meal? I don't expect my steak to be less, <laughs> or I don't expect to get two steaks yep. for the price of one. Yep. It's, the only, it's the only market that we expect them to give us more than we paid for, for some reason. And I think part of that is, is, has happened because racers are putting on races. Your sure. biggest and best races are the people that you share the, the staging lanes with at other events. And I think because they're our friends, we expect them to, to give us more for our money. But reality is it's the only market that, that people have that expectation and it shouldn't be there. And the flip side of it too, Jed, we've been to races where the promoters took a bath, right? Like in, in, uh, in the five, six figures at times. I've never seen like the plate being passed around the pits. Like, Hey, I feel bad for these guys. You want to throw in an extra hundred for them? Like that doesn't happen. You know what I mean? So that's true. Um, all right. So the other thread that I wanted to pull on again, big picture, but, but catalyzed by this event last weekend, um, I have, I have trumpeted for years and, and you could say that we're biased in this jet as, as junior director parents today, but I was, I was barking this three, four years ago, we need more junior dragster inclusion in the big dollar bracket scene to, to pave the way to, to, to reconnect what I think has largely been lost in that transition from junior dragster drivers to ultimately becoming uh, bracket racers and, and perhaps big dollar bracket racers. We, we need to introduce them to this. So I think junior dragsters at bracket races, particularly bigger bracket races, is a is a really good thing and, and we need to see more of. Now that gets challenging when there's 200 of them, because I think you may have mentioned this earlier, Jed, like 200 junior dragsters and just the inherent time that it takes to run junior dragsters. Like, obviously they're a little bit slower on the racetrack. They're slower shutting down. And I don't know if it's, if there's any, I don't know if it is the the need for parental control or if it's a legitimate need of the the engines and the cars and the setups. But the the time from fire up to pre stage is is long, right? Longer than than your big cars. So uh, I think it's fair to say that running two hundred juniors through an event is probably somewhat similar time wise to running three hundred, you know, big cars, top ball or or bottom ball cars through the same event. Uh, logistically, it creates a problem. So where do you fall uh, on this? Should juniors be included uh, or not? Or is there a happy medium? Uh, yeah, I'm all for juniors being included. And, and But I will, I will say that I wasn't always that guy. But now that I'm a junior dad, um, yeah, I think they belong. Uh, I love uh, the, the kids being able to race with me at the same place I'm racing at and us have fun together. Um, they, they get a taste of those bigger stages and, you know, may it might keep them interested in racing and want to, want to be that guy running no box or a box, uh, at the next big race when they age out. So I think there's a lot of positives to it. Um, the negatives I understand it is time consuming. They, are definitely taking up, you know, when there's 200 of them, they're taking up a lot of space in the pits that some of the, I heard there were racers that came there and couldn't find a spot and had to leave. So, uh, you know, that those people are probably saying, well, juniors don't belong, but by and large, um, 
I think there's a cutoff where juniors, you know, they, they shouldn't be at the mega races because that's all serious and very serious money. And, but, and I don't mean to, to downgrade a 10 or 20 grander, but at those medium purse races, that's crazy that I'm even saying that's medium purse now, but at those medium purse races, yeah, I think they definitely belong. And I don't think we can take the, this scenario that played out and judge whether or not juniors should get to come back to, to next year. This was an anomaly. Um, it was a perfect storm. We've talked about it. I don't think you're going to see that again. Um, easy for me to say, uh, you know, uh, that was a question I was going to ask you is, does, does this turn people off of next year or does it make them more excited and want to be there and get there earlier? So they make sure they get one of those 700 pit spots, but nonetheless, I am a fan of having them included in the same races that the top and bottom bulb racers are getting to race. I like it. I'm with you a hundred percent. And to your point, like what impact does this have going forward? I think it's inevitable regardless of, of what reasoning you want to put on it. There's going to be regression to the mean. Like, I don't think this race has 700 plus entries next year. I think it is a, is a it's a perfect storm. To that end, you will lose some racers that just don't want to be part of the circus, right? Like it's just too drawn out. It's not interesting to me. Uh, and and perhaps even though, you know, you see the flyer, you see that there's three different classes, you see that there's junior dragsters, um, even though it is exactly what you signed up for, it's, it's not really what you had envisioned, right? On the flip side, I think the fact that there were 200 junior dragsters here, like within the junior dragster community makes this race more appealing to them. And I do think that a part, uh, a, perhaps a significant part, perhaps not as significant as I think, of what made up this tremendous crowd was I saw a lot of racers racing there with their kids, right? That, that I don't think uh, would have necessarily driven to Bradenton, Florida to run for three tens off the bottom. but if I get to go and race my car for three tens off the bottom and my son or daughter gets to race three days in junior drags racing over uh, the course of a weekend where a week where he or she's out of school and I'm off of work and it's 30 degrees at home and it's 75 in Florida, sign me up. I think that that explains some of this tremendous turnout because I just saw a lot of families there racing as families which is how I came up, you know, being introduced to the sport. Like I don't want to wax too sentimental, but I, I, the, the argument that I've made for including junior dragsters in these events, as I said before, is to, to bridge that gap, right. To, because I feel like I, I may be off base in this, but I feel like the graduation rate from junior dragster racing from the time that I raced junior dragsters to now has decreased pretty significantly in terms of junior racers that actually go into bracket racing, right? Or even continue in racing period because, and I think part of that is that they just haven't been introduced to that culture. And I'm confident that if they were, it's so freaking awesome. And it's so freaking addicting that like, you just, you meet the right people and you're like, that's where I want to be. I want to aspire to take the skills that I've learned in junior dragster and, and, and go bracket racing. And to that point, I mentioned the, the amazing age out video that Danielle Hagedorn had put together. 
I don't know, Jed, if you took the time to walk, to watch through that, it's like a 10 and 11 minute video, but I was blown away of the 20 ish drivers interviewed. It was like 90% of them. Cause one of the questions was what's next for you. You know, now that junior dragster's done almost to a man or woman, it was, I'm getting in a 67 Chevelle running no box. I'm getting into a dragster. It was, they're all looking forward to the next step in racing. And I don't think that's all that common among junior dragster racing. And I think a big part of that is this meshing of those two worlds. Great points, Luke. I, I definitely believe that it leads to, to racers continuing on uh, to the next level and, and helping grow our sport or at the very least keep it alive. So uh, I think living in those atmospheres for three or four days just fuels their fire, something serious and makes them want to continue on. And especially the, the age out video, I did not get to see the video. So you got me intrigued and I'm definitely going to go find it and watch it. But um, the, the fact that the fact that it's 90% at that race um, tells me that it's, it's the right move. I mean, you, you're hearing, you're hearing these kids and their parents travel all the way down there to race. And, you know, you'd think, well, they're aging out. So they're traveling down there because this is the last time these kids are going to get to race or 75% of them yet. It's just the opposite. It's just the last time they're going to race this class, but they're all excited about getting to the next level and racing more classes. So I think it's really cool to have them involved. Um, you know, I, my, my beautiful wife is laying on the bed watching us do this podcast right now. And when I said, I think we should have them involved in uh, the races that we race, she said, does that mean you're going to have them in at your races? <laughs> well, wait a minute now. I mean, let's, let's don't get carried away. Uh, <laughs> but they've got two or three weeks of their own after the, the World Foot Break Challenge. So <laughs> no worries there. But, uh, you know, obviously there are some events that they don't fit within, but certainly when you're adding all classes and it's a, again, specialty type race where the purse is not outrageous. I think it fits very well. And this one, this one's going to get judged a lot uh, by how many showed up and there people are going to say, well, you just can't have them at these races, but I don't think people need to let that sway them. I, I think this was a, a weird deal. That, that crowd will fall way off next year. Probably only be 175 of them. <laughs> no I, to, to your point like i don't I, I i'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth as well like we promote an annual event that we we don't host junior directors at and there is there are several events like logistic concerns yours comes to mind from a time standpoint ours comes to mind from a from a parking room standpoint right like i i, I can't put 20 junior directors in at our race much less 200 right like we're literally out of room but to that point i don't when I say that there's, I feel like I would love to see, I, I'm not even going to say be judgmental enough to say, I feel like there should be, I would, I would say, I would love to see more junior dragster involvement in big dollar bracket racing. It doesn't necessarily mean that I want 150, 200 junior dragsters at, at these events, but I think what I'm trying to accomplish, uh, the, the, the big good to come of this could be achieved from a, a, a preset 32 car field even. And to, to the point where it's a special deal to qualify 
to just be a part of this event, right? And and racers are somehow working for a month or a season even to to get the opportunity to be one of the 32 junior dragsters at you know the the bottom bulb extravaganza or whatever the other big race in that area is i think ultimately that serves the same purpose as just building more intrigue and introduction to create that bridge from junior dragster racing to uh, big dollar bracket competition or bracket competition in general yep very good points luke very well said and uh, i certainly uh, i certainly support that thought wholeheartedly all right i think that's it that's the show um Let's let's wrap this thing up. Well, Luke, it's uh, it's been fun. Um, we uh, we hadn't got together quite as much here lately, but uh, this was a lot of fun show, and we appreciate uh, everybody staying tuned this long to listen in to us, and hope you enjoyed the show. And um, we uh, we're, we're going to have a little bit of an odd schedule here for the next little while, but you'll be hearing from us probably as often as you want to anyway but for this one it's done and uh, certainly if you got some thoughts on any of the stuff we discussed or uh, any other stuff we'd love to hear from you there on the sportsman drag racing podcast facebook page you can message us and producer mark will intercept that and tell us what's going on or you can put it right out there for the public and uh, create some discussion debate whatever whatever you want to create uh, we'd love to hear from you either way Certainly reach out to us there early and often. Luke, I don't know if you're uh, if you're up for shouts. We didn't discuss that, but do you have anything like that? I got a few. I want to shout out Tyler Bohannon. I think I put the, t- the podcast jinx on him. So shouts to Tyler. Um, <laughs> all you have to do is measure up to Jeff Sarah's 2021. I, I did put that on your shoulders. Shouts to, to pre-stage battles. I've actually had one of those in my life. You ever had a pre-stage battle? No, I have never had a staging battle or a pre-staging battle. One of the first national events that I ever attended was in Topeka, Kansas. There's actually a great story that goes along with this. I don't know that we have time for it today. Remind me at some point and I'll, and I'll tell the whole story from Topeka. But it culminated in a semifinal round matchup in which I engaged in a pre-stage battle. I lost. I think I lost the pre-stage battle and I lost the round. Pretty sure I got both of those, right? Um, this was in the day before LEDs and um, myself and probably like 60, 70% of the super comp field struggled to get a light. So I'm, I'm barefoot, zero delay, um, got to get a little run at it, you know, got to get a little chunk. And uh, so my, my go-to was let my opponent pre-stage and I'm just going to get it all at once and get on in a little bit, Right. And uh, my, my opponent in the semifinals had a, had the similar idea. It was Mike Campbell out of, uh, out of Minnesota. He spanked me. Uh, like I said, ultimately I gave in, uh, I, I believe that I, I think Buster predated me. I think that's Jeff Stewart waving me in that intimidated 17 year old me. I went ahead and pre-staged and then, uh, and then I got my butt kicked. So I have, I've done it. Like I, I can commiserate, but I do want to shout out pre-stage battles in general and specifically Jeff Stewart and Troy Stafford, epic. I don't know if epic is the right word, bizarre, um, but just from a content standpoint, thank you guys. Shouts to you. We needed that. Um, and then I, I want to close out, Big Jed. I want to shout out Jenny Mo. You, your wife is literally laying on the bed behind you listening to this nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. 
That I mean, what a what a what a woman, what a cheerleader yeah. you got. I'm impressed. I I I don't I actually as I get a mental picture of this, I don't know how much I like it. It seems a little <laughs> awkward now that I think about it, but that's to, uh, that's to Jenny Mo. That's awesome. Jenny Mo get a shout out. That's good stuff. And uh that's good stuff. Like the great shouts. And I'm gonna shout out. <laughs> I'm Hold on, do we out. have a manscape dad? Now that I know Jenny Mo is 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 laying beside you. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I don't know if we're rereading or <laughs> or what we got planned, but uh Mark will tell us that in a little bit. But I'm gonna shout out being barefoot. I'm not real sure what that meant. Like does does that mean zero delay? I've I've heard two definitions of barefoot. Okay. So yes, the way that in the context that I was using it, barefoot was zeroed out, no delay, right? Barefoot, got nothing. <laughs> that's, that's I have so good. I have also heard barefoot being being um the label put on a racer that does not have nitrous. I ain't gonna spray by he barefoot. <laughs> so you can look at that either way. Yeah. You said that like you learned it in Louisiana or something. The way you said that, <laughs> that had a little Cajun tone to it. That was good stuff. <laughs> so shout out to being barefoot. All right, guys, we're done. Uh, certainly, if you uh, like to get on Twitter, Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. We'd love to hear from you. That wraps up the show. Thanks for listening. And we love uh, we love you guys, and we hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. And we certainly look forward to talking to you real soon about more Sportsman Drag Race. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.